So my name is Betsy, and I'm a woman in long-term recovery. Uh, the last 15 years of which I have spent raising money for scholarships for people to access treatment, access the help that they need. And what I've learned in those 15 years is it's a really tricky business in this field. I will tell you that the stigma still exists. There are a lot of people that don't believe that it impacts them or that it is an issue. I am passionate about recovery. I am passionate about people getting the help they need. And what I'm up here this morning to do is not ask for your donations, but ask for your awareness. I would be willing to bet that you have people in front of you, in your offices, across the lunch table, across the coffee table, who are capable of making a difference for someone in this disease. I'm so happy to be associated with A Way Out for two reasons. Number one, A Way Out matches the applicant with the appropriate treatment. They're not all about any one particular track. Everyone is individual. Everyone needs different levels of care. And I will tell you, with managed care, it's a really sticky path these days to get people the treatment that they need. Without your awareness, a way out would cease to exist. The other thing I love about A Way Out is that they stick with their, their scholarship recipients for an entire year. Again, because of managed care, the length of time that people have an actual treatment is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So what happens after they come home is key to their staying sober. And the fact that A Way Out stays with them, they're expanding their alumni program, that's what keeps people sober. That's what makes the dollars that we receive so valuable. We get more bang for our buck, in other words. So I would ask for your awareness. I would ask for you to think when you have someone sitting across from you whose life has benefited from a loved one or themselves getting sober, you should have these pamphlets in your office, in your car, carry one in your purse, and, and have the people give Liz a call, give a way out a call. These envelopes are on the front table. I'm going to take one home and put a check in it and send it back to Liz because I want to help the people in this valley get the help that they need through a way out. Thank you for listening. It is now my pleasure to introduce Liz Means, the executive director of A Way Out, uh, my good friend. Uh, she's been in the nonprofit sector for over 20 years, helping with sustainability, fundraising, strategic planning, capital campaigns, and more. Liz, with the direction of A Way Out Board of Directors, who I also wanted to mention is a volunteer board that is very generous with their time and with their dollars. And Liz will be introducing those people. And this is a volunteer board that works tirelessly to be of service and to give back and to help others. Liz worked with the board in late 2012 and started A Way Out to answer an increasing need for help from people with chronic substance abuse problems unable to make a change and who needed help finding a solution to their drug or alcohol problem, just like I did. Since that time, the program has grown into much more comprehensive resource for our communities. Aspen is so lucky to have a way out. 
It helps people with the beginning process of recovery throughout the first year and in the long term. I will tell you from experience, it's not hard. Well, it is hard, but it's not as hard to get sober as it is to stay sober. And I'm sure there are many people in, that room, in this room who would agree with me. A Way Out has served hundreds annually. I learned last night, last year, they served 600 people in this valley. And with your help and with the help of those people whose paths you cross every day, we can help more and more people. So it's my pleasure to introduce Executive Director of A Way Out, Liz Means, to the podium. You know, everybody, thank you so much for coming and for caring about this topic. Um, you know, when I was growing up and somebody mentioned the word alcoholic, the image that passed my mind was <clears throat> some bum um, in an alley, you know, passed out with a fifth of something in a paper bag, and, and that's pretty much what my image was. It's very much changed. Today... I realize that it could be my coworker. You know, I have many people in my family who are either actively alcoholics or recovering or dead. And it's really very common. The National Institute of Drug Abuse said that one in seven people in the US will be affected by addiction. That's an astounding fact. It used to be we were also worried about cancer being the disease that would kill us all, and now we're finding that really the disease that's taking the greatest toll on our nation is actually addiction. And it's worth all of us trying to do something to help cure this because it's taking our nation by storm. Um, Betsy, I want to thank you for that incredible introduction. Um, it, it, um, this has been a labor of love for me. Uh, I was invited by the board to get this organization started, and I, I didn't really think I'd be here this long. And I'm here this long because it's just so heartwarming to see people get better, to see families get reunited, to see young children have a chance to grow up in a healthy family. It, it means a lot. Um, drug addiction is a brain disease. Um, that's a proven fact now. And as with a disease, it's not that you take a pill and you're cured. It's more that you have to keep your disease in check, um, somewhat like diabetes and taking your insulin. So that's what we're about. We're about helping people realize they've got a disease Usually, they already realize something's very wrong, but helping them find a path to recover and supporting them on that recovery journey because it can be really rough in the beginning. Um, I have a lot of thanks that I'd like to start with. Um, and first of all, I'd like to thank the Away Out Board of Directors because without them, there, there would not be an Away Out, and it's really their brainchild. So would the Away Out Board stand up and be acknowledged? Thank you. I'd also like to thank the Meadows, um, Katie Smith, Grassroots TV, Aspen Public Radio, KSBN, The Times, The Glenwood Post, 
um, and also our esteemed sponsors. You'll notice that outside around the food, um, there were tables of treatment facilities, and they're here really to help everyone in this room. If you know somebody and you want to take some information to them, these are really valid evidence-based treatment centers that we believe in, so they're here as a, a resource for all of you. Um, I'd also like to uh, thank the Away Out staff, who's probably still outside, but without them and their support, this event wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. So let's give them a round, even though they're not here. <laughs> um, I wanted to let you know that there will be a mid-morning break, so there'll be food yet again. You're not going to go hungry. Um, and we are hoping to end around 12.45 now. A lot of people were stuck in traffic, so we got a little bit of a late start. We'll see how it, how it goes. Um, Grassroots TV is filming today, so if you want somebody to see this symposium, Grassroots will be airing it, airing it from time to time, so you, um, you can call the channel and find out when, when it's scheduled. And also, we're also offering um, education credits for clinicians. Don't forget to hand in your forms at the end of the um, presentation. Um, so as Betsy said, A Way Out has always believed in being a resource for everyone. We don't, we don't um, partner with any one resource. Rather, we collaborate with anybody and everybody. We believe that that's really important. Also, A Way Out serves people in Eagle County, Garfield County, and Pitkin County. So we are on the other side of the mountains as well. Um, just, just for your information, um, some of the things that we do um, to fulfill our mission, which is to provide individuals and families in crisis with drugs and alcohol, access to treatment and recovery support, um, we believe everybody, regardless of an inability to pay, can have access to treatment. We don't care who they are. Um, we just want to help them, and we feel the ripple effect of one person getting helped is, is enormous. So we, some of the things we do is we help with crisis call support, clinical substance use disorder and mental health assessments to determine key needs, we work with clients and their families to find the right treatment program. We provide scholarships to ensure that everyone has access to a validated evidence-based treatment program. We have ongoing clinical support, aftercare planning, and financial aid to support sober housing and a year of care. We have a family program that helps relatives understand the disease of addiction and be able to navigate how that affects their home, and, uh, and also how to take care of themselves and reclaim their own lives. And we have an ongoing, growing alumni recovery program. This alumni recovery program is, is really fun. Um, everything from the escape room in Glenwood to planting trees on a farm, rafting, hiking, bowling, they do a lot of really great things. And, you know, uh, many of our clients, especially young you know, 20 to 30-year-olds uh, think, God, if I quit drinking and drugging, you know, life's kind of over. It's not going to be fun anymore. 
Well, we're trying to remedy that through our alumni program. Um, they have a really good time. There's a lot of laughter, and we're trying to grow that. So um, spread the word about that. And lastly, our educational outreach and symposia are aimed to help reduce sti stigma, tell people about our resources, and help grow recovery in, in our areas. Um, so we've been really fortunate. Um, when people come to a way out, they fill out an application, they do the assessment with one of our counselors, and for those who say, okay, I'll do this, many say, no, I, I'm gonna do this on my own. You know, I don't need your help, which is fine. But for the ones who do work with us, we've had a, between a 66 and 70% sobriety rate after a year. And we're really, really excited about that because the national average is about 40%. So we feel that with the community's help and the referrals that we get, we can make a difference. Um, Today we're gonna to listen to a number of experts on different aspects of our minds. How, how can we support ourselves for a more meaningful life in recovery or just simply in our everyday lives? So our first presenter, Dr. Gassell, will be introduced by Dr. Michael Barnes who is in our, on our advisory board. And he is the chief clinical officer at the Foundry Treatment Center in Steamboat. He is well known for his work in families, his huge compassionate heart, and his expertise in recovery. Please welcome Dr. Barnes. Good morning. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Judith Grissel. She's an internationally recognized neuroscientist and a professor of psychology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. She's also the author of uh, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. From my perspective, it's a really wonderful book, really well-written, speaks very clearly to this very complicated, complex uh, issue of addiction and the neurobiological roots of addiction. Dr. Grizel earned her BA in psychology from Florida Atlantic University. She earned her MA and PhD in behavioral neuroscience and psychology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. She also completed a postdoctorate fellowship uh, in the Department of Behavioral Neuroscience at the Oregon Health Science University and VA Medical Center in Portland. She's published over 50 scholarly articles, reviews, book chapters, and editorial works. She is clearly a consummate scholar and academic. But she's also a person in long-term recovery. She said last night that she's been in recovery for uh, over 30 years. Um, and in my world, it's really a rare combination to have someone who has that scholarly kind of understanding as well as the real world understanding. So I'm very excited to kind of hear her presentation um, that um, kind of speaks to the experience of addiction through two different schools of thought one being academic, and as she said last night, she has spent years doing research in the basement of large academic buildings, so this kind of very deep scholarly work. And the other is really the school um, that's experiential, and it's a very different laboratory, so she's done a, a kind of a second doctorate in the, uh, the uh, kind of laboratory of active addiction. 
So it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Grizel. down because, um, because I'm a teacher at a liberal arts school and I, uh, I, can't, I won't be able to see my slides and I also, my talk is a mix of um, science and my personal story, which I think uh, is probably, there we go, is maybe not quite typical. I grew up in New Jersey mostly and um, pretty normal house as we all know, addiction cuts across uh, you know, every demographic. By the way, if there are some seats in the front of you, if you'd like to see the font, I'm, I'm sorry that it's sometimes going to be too small for you to see. So there are plenty of seats up front. This is what I do with my students, too, and they all just look at me like, <laughs> get on with it. But anyway, um, so everything seemed pretty good, especially from the outside, until I uh, got my first good drink of alcohol, which was at 13. I don't know why this seemed like a great idea. There's probably something there, but a friend and I split a half a gallon of wine, and really it changed the whole trajectory of my life. I, that, uh, I'm sure I got more than my share of that half gallon. That was kind of my pattern, but I felt whole for the first time, and I didn't even know I wasn't whole before that, but once I got drunk, I thought, this is how adults do it. This is the way they get through life. I can do this now. And um, for the next 10 years, I kind of slowly self-destructed. I never said no to an, another substance. Um, I ended up homeless. I lived in South Florida then, so we moved from New Jersey to the Jersey part of Florida. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I used everything I could get my hands on. I think uh, stimulants, cocaine especially, was what brought me to the, my knees pretty early. But, um, I contracted hepatitis C from dirty needles. I um, had been kicked out of three schools, the first one in 10th grade, and then two colleges. So I was pretty much hopeless. I didn't like myself, and nobody else liked me either. And I ended up in treatment, which at the time, this was in the mid-'80s, I thought was going to be like a spa. Um, I had no idea what treatment was, but I thought, I need a break. You know, this is... <laughs> This is not going well. And when I was there, I heard about the disease model of addiction. I learned that at least many people thought that if I kept using, I was going to die. And um, with a few weeks of no chemicals in my blood and brain, you know, that didn't seem as, you know, uh, I wasn't quite as indifferent to that. So um, my thinking, like I think many addicts and alcoholics was, don't tell me I can't use. You know, I'm only 23. I just turned 23. I thought, I'm going to fix this. Diseases can be cured. I'll just fix it, and then I'll be able to use. So there. Um, so anyway, I, that was my trajectory. This is, I was about eight or nine on the left, and I was drunk in the picture on the right. I was, th I was just 13, I think, at a family event. And so I, I went to, I you know, took seven years to get my undergrad. Seven years in Boulder, which wasn't that bad, um, and, uh, seven, and then three years in a postdoc, and then I got an academic job. And I'm, I'm still in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm using um, lots of recovery groups, so and all the tools I could get. But 
um, it was gradually dawning on me, wow, this is a big problem. I'm not getting anywhere. And what I'm just going to summarize what I learned. So about half of the risk for addiction is genetic. Um, and about, let's see if I can get this. The other half is environmental. It's not really all that helpful. Uh, developmental um, contributions are a huge part. So we're now learning that because I started at 13, um, my chances were much higher than average, probably around 60%. And, and while the brain is developing, um, especially this reward pathway that we're all here to hear about is developing, perturbing that system with addictive drugs is, is probably the best way to develop an addiction. In fact, 90% of people who have a problem with a substance start before they're 18. And the earlier you start, the worse it is. And then, unfortunately, all these three things interact. So what, this is kind of summarizing the headache I had for about 20 years trying to solve my problem, because it's really too complicated. Um, so I just first want to back up and talk about, um, in, I'm not against drugs. I'm against addiction. And for me, you know, I used my, my uh, share early, so I'm, I'm hopefully done. But um, it's really a normal tendency to take mind-altering chemicals. So people have been doing it since before we were people. Uh, you know, before humans were humans, they were altering their um, neurobiology to change the way they feel and think and behave. And um, every human culture has done that, except I read where, somewhere uh, the Inuit, who, this is a quote, had the misfortune of being unable to grow anything. <laughs> so I guess if you could, you did, which I can relate to. Um, and not only humans and prehumans, but um, all, lots of other animals. So cats take catnip. Birds seek out fermented berries. Um, bears and elephants, you know, have been known to break into distilleries and get wasted. My favorite story of all is about a um, species of ant in South America in their big ant mound. I'm actually not sure how big it is, but anyway, they have an ant mound. And they devote a substantial portion of that real estate to raising beetles. And these beetles are, um, you know, it costs the ants their own baby ants, and they have to feed them, and they have to clean them, and they have to take care of them. And apparently they do that because on the back of the beetle's little hairy legs grows a fungus. And every once in a while, the ants get together, they harvest that fungus, they all eat it, and they get really slow for like a day and a half. And there's no um, nutritional value we've seen in the fungus that we can determine. So it's just, it's, it's sort of part of who we are and maybe who all animals are. Um, and the reason for that has to do with this dopamine reward pathway that you saw on the sign coming out. So this is sometimes called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway because it goes from the, um, See, can I? Well, it doesn't matter. You can see it. From the base of the brain stem, there's a small area called the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. And this, um, these are a few of the dopamine neurons. Dopamine is actually not a very prevalent neurotransmitter. So they uh, start here, and they project up here to these two kind of um, golf ball size areas behind your eyes, about three inches in. And that's called the nucleus accumbens, and it's in the limbic system. So this mesolimbic pathway is really critical. It was discovered in the 1950s by researchers in Canada, and many, many people have studied it. Every single addictive drug is addictive 
because it causes a squirt of dopamine in the limbic area, in the nucleus accumbens. And anything that causes a squirt of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens can be addictive. And what are those natural things? Sex and food, for some of us, chocolate cake or hot sauce even. Um, so this is a pathway that um, makes us feel not the opposite of depressed, but kind of uh, like, ah, gee, I like that. That's good. You know, sort of a um, titillating feeling. So this pathway evolved through natural selection. So it helps our survival. And it promotes things like eating and sex. Because if we didn't eat and reproduce, then that wouldn't be good for us. So we like those things because they basically allow us to pass our DNA on. You see what I mean? Um, but all drugs of abuse co-opt that pathway. Not only do they co-opt it, but they're more potent than natural reinforcers, partly because we can control the dose and we can get them as much as we want. So it's, you know, you can only eat so much cake, even me. Um, so the problem is the more you use this pathway, especially when you're young, the more it gets insensitive. So it's almost like if uh, a teenager or anybody listens to music really, really loud, they become deaf. And then you've got to keep turning up the volume and turning up the volume. So for me, um, I like that pleasure of that first drink. I went on to uh, marijuana and cocaine and other stimulants and downers. And all those things, to some degree, activate that pathway. And so I was constantly pressing the pedal and doing that made my system deaf. And that deafness is a way of looking at um, sort of tolerance. So now, to get the same rise, which I never quite could achieve again, although I tried, um, I had to keep taking more and more. So that leads to addiction. What is addiction? And uh, you know, I talk about this all the time, and I, I feel like a crummy scientist, because <laughs> science is always changing the definition, I guess you've noticed. So it depends which DSM we talk about. But I think, um, I think there's a short answer and maybe a little bit longer answer. So definitely craving is involved. This is an obsession and a compulsion that developed for me right away. I spent, as I said, um, you know, this became my primary goal, to get wasted. Tolerance, which is a tendency to increase the dose. Dependence, which is um, evident when you take away the drug and you withdraw. And I should point out, I got clean in 86. And at that time, we didn't think cocaine was addictive. I mean, I, I knew it was. But the scientists that I wasn't talking to uh, didn't think it was addictive because you couldn't see withdrawal. It wasn't like opiates or alcohol, where you could tell from a block away if someone was withdrawing. With cocaine, you know, they were just mean. Um, so dependence, that was withdrawal. And then um, it has to have costs. It has to be detrimental to the individual and society. And um, that's great for me because I, my, my one habit left, my big habit is caffeine. I'm a nut for caffeine. I was one time camping not that far from here, actually, when my stove broke. And I only cared because of the cooking of the coffee. And so about the second day, I was getting a headache. And I just took a spoon and ate the um, <laughs> ate my grounds, you know, it's all in my teeth, and I'm like, oh, I'm having a great time here. Uh, but 
crud, you know, I'm not going to get, I wasn't enjoying anything without it. And the, the last one, but, but because, by the way, caffeine is good for you. It's not bad, unless you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, no harm at all. In fact, there's some real benefits. So um, that brings me maybe to the last one, which is a denial of the drug problem. <laughs> but I don't think caffeine's addictive. You know, I, I'm dependent on caffeine, but I'm not addicted. No, you don't buy it, huh? Okay. So we're going to talk mostly about the first three um, because that's what I know the most about. So the rest are sort of social, and I think other um, speakers might address those. And I want to summarize a whole semester of a course in psychopharmacology. This is a bad time to leave. Okay. Um, in three sentences. And this is really what we know about how drugs act on the brain. So first, drugs only, only, only speed up or slow down what's already going on. They do nothing new. Any drug only works because it speeds up or slows down what's already happening. Um, every single drug has side effects. Uh, it has side effects because the drugs interact with what's already happening. And what's already happening is sort of like um, uh, the, the neurocircuits are sort of like uh, letters in the alphabet. And they're used in multiple words. So if you take a drug that's going to affect serotonin to boost your mood, you also might change your sleep, your eating, your sex, your arousal states. So all of those things are side effects that you wouldn't necessarily want, but you can't change, you know, there's no mood chemical. There's serotonin, which is used in multiple circuits. So they all have side effects. And the most interesting axiom is that drugs' effects are counteracted by an adaptive brain, uh-oh, to produce the exact opposite effects. So um, your brain adapts to any drug that changes the way it uh, perceives the world by producing the exact opposite effect. And that's what we're going to spend a lot of time on, that last one. And I wanted to back up. As a liberal arts teacher, I thought I could start with a little philosophy. Um, to tell a short story about this. Uh, so when Socrates, who recognized the principles I'm going to talk about today, he was maybe the first one to get it down. And actually, Plato got it down. So it was Socrates' last day. You may remember from school. He was, he was sentenced to death. He had to drink hemlock for failing to endorse the state gods and corrupting the youth. Um, and so he, he, was, he had been chained. They decided, OK, today is the day you're dying. Um, his students were there, including Plato, who wrote about um, his teachings that day. But before he really started, he was just making a side comment. And I know you can't see it, but he said, how singular is the thing called pleasure? And how curiously related to pain? Pleasure and pain are related. He who pursues either of them is compelled to take the other. If you pursue pleasure, you get pain. If you pursue pain, you get pleasure. So he noticed these things were sort of really connected. And that was written down you know, a long, long time ago. About 2,000 years later, Claude Bernard, who was a French physiologist, kind of a, an interesting guy, he married his wife because of her dowry so he could conduct his experiments. And his experiments were, some of them were a little uh, gruesome and extreme, but he was a good scientist, uh, probably, <laughs> overall. And he, he kind of picked up on the same theme that Socrates noted. Uh, I skipped a little time in there. But he said, um, 
we have this stable internal environment. I'm not, I don't, I still have nightmares about taking French, but I'll give it a try. He called it the milieu interior. And that stable state was necessary, he said, a necessary condition for a free and independent life, having this stable baseline. He was talking mostly about things like body temperature. You know, it needs to be maintained around 98.6. If you get too hot, you'll sweat. If you get too cold, you'll shiver and generate heat. He said that's necessary. Also, glucose levels and energy, other kinds of energy stores, and sleep. So there's this kind of um, stable state. Another physiologist, 80 years later, so not that much later, uh, Walter Cannon, uh, an American this time, took Bernard's ideas and coined the term homeostasis. Maybe you've heard of it. But uh, it's a great single word to describe this, this stable internal state. And Bernard and uh, Cannon recognized that lots of our, um, our survival depends on keeping things kind of at a, at a baseline, at a minimum. He also coined the word uh, flight or flight, which you've probably heard of. And he was studying this. So he noticed that if you get aroused and you have a fight or flight response, the, um, the result of that often is to be relaxed later. So this happens all the time. I'm sorry, you can't quite see it. If you, if you um, find that you have a lump and you think it might be uh, um, cancer, you probably are anxious and worried for a long time, you know, until you get the results of your biopsy. If it comes out good, then you don't go just back to life as normal, but you go really to this great, you know, life is fabulous. I'm so happy to be alive. I don't go from feeling anxious and worried back to normal. I go from being anxious and worried to really uh, kind of happy and relaxed. Or you could do it the other way around. I uh, recently took a vacation, and on my vacation, it was wonderful. And then you get home from vacation, and it's kind of like, oh, this again, you know? <laughs> Kitchen floor, all the, all the stuff I got to do. The classic example of homeostasis in feeling states is falling in love, so in the beginning, it's as good as cocaine, and actually you can't tell the difference between the initial stages of falling in love and um, a bump of cocaine. If you look at the MRI, it's pretty much the same. But then you get used to the partner, right? It's sort of like, yeah, okay, and everything's fine. You have a new stable state, you know, it's just, you know, more of this. And then you get dumped or something, and you're really bereft. So it goes not from an extreme back to normal, but from an extreme to the other extreme. And this, I, I spend a long time in the book trying to explain this, but um, it's a fundamental process of the brain. And the reason that we have to have a stable state is because um, imagine that this squiggly line is your brain activity. And it's responding to the beautiful mountains and the nice day and what you had for breakfast and who's sitting next to you. And, the words I'm saying or something. And there's so much going on that it's just constantly <laughs> bumping like this. And then something really important happens. Let's say, you know, a uh, mountain lion, you have them, right? Comes up on the thing and we're all being considered for lunch. You would be hard pressed to tell that, let's see if I can get this, if that mountain lion, you can probably barely see it, is that yellow mark there. That's the brain responding to that. So in order to tell if something interesting is happening, we have to kind of tamp down on all the normal input so that you just feel neutral 
And you can tell um, if something's happening by its relative change compared to that neutral. So I say at the bottom, feelings return to neutral so we know when something happens. That seems probably obvious, but I'm going to um, now apply that to addictive drugs. And this model is something that was developed in the 1970s by two researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Richard Solomon and John Corbett, who recognized that homeostasis was involved in feeling states. They really kind of put it together. They were only talking about drug abuse, but they, um, they described this model that I'm going to talk with you about. It's kind of the core of the book. And I think it is the um, dominant model for the neuroscientists that understand or are studying addiction today. So I think it's important. And it's a couple of maybe hairy slides. But any time you take a drug, you go from this neutral state, you know, I feel okay. And what's interesting about this neutral state is we all have one. And you think, you know, maybe if you uh, won the lottery and moved to Aspen, you'd be so ecstatic. But that would only last a little while. And you basically adapt, just like the lovers adapted. Or if you lost your legs, you'd be, um, you know, devastated. Again, no, you'll end up right back at normal. The way you feel neutral is your neutral, your baseline neutral. And of course, drug addicts are trying to change that. They're trying to get beyond neutral. So they take this uh, a drug right about here, and they get a rise. It could be alcohol. It could be a, a nicotine. It could be heroin. It could be whatever. Um, and then there's sort of a stable state while the drug's around. It's not quite as good as the initial rush, but it's pretty good. And then they have a little rebound effect. And um, you know, the rebound effect could be a hangover. It could be a little craving for another um, uh, toke on your whatever. Um, but that is a lot like the rebound effect that Socrates described when he took off the thing. So his was in the opposite direction. He was feeling bad. But when they removed the chains, he felt great. How nice. I have this pleasure. So he was also, you know, this is a basic, probably with all of life, it's probably basic physics. So I apologize that this is going to be tough to see, but I'm going to go through it anyway. So here is, is it, does it matter which side? Not really. Here's the thing I just showed you, and this is right from Solomon and Corbett's paper. So you have a neutral state, you take an addictive drug, you get a rush, then you have this stable state for as long as the drug's around, and then you rebound. Why is that? They wanted to describe, why does that happen? And they did it with two um, processes, or two mechanisms. The first they called the A process, because it came first. And the A process is the direct result of the drug. So cocaine blocks reuptake of dopamine in the mesolimbic pathway. That's the A process for cocaine. Nicotine activates acetylcholine receptors. That's the um, a process for nicotine. So each of each drug, and I go through it in the book, has a specific A process. It's what it does to the brain. But the brain, clever brain that it is, it wants to adapt to maintain homeostasis. So it does that by creating its own B process. So the B process is the brain's response to what the drug does to the brain. And it's aimed at bringing the brain back to baseline. And that could be lots of things. The receptors get desensitized, or you um, don't have as much uh, dopamine around, or lots of things. And I'm going to give some examples of that. The one, um, so this is why when you add the A process and the B process together, 
you get the net effect, which is what we experience. We experience the drug's effect on the brain and the brain's effect on the drug's effect on the brain combined. Now, the brain is so clever that um, the B process adapts, and this is the cause of addiction. So after taking the drug lots of times, we notice that actually you don't get much of a rush, and you don't feel high, really, but you feel really terrible when it's not there. This is true for every drug. So, you know, the, the tragedy with the nicotine, uh, the vaping right now, is that, you know, after a few months of that, you're really only helping the nicotine companies because the whole reason for self-administering nicotine over and over again is to not feel terrible. And just like uh, heroin addicts haven't mostly been high in a while. They're just trying to stave off, you know, this giant dip at the end. And why that is is because the B process, which is coming from the brain, adapts. And this is the brain's best feature. It, it adapts better than anything. And so it's so clever, it wants to maintain this homeostasis, and it does so by getting bigger, coming on earlier, and lasting longer. And not only that, this is, that was the worst slide probably, um, it learns to anticipate the drug is coming. So how does it anticipate it? Well, um, whoops, it learns, and it um, associates the drug coming with paraphernalia. So I can remember, you know, just seeing the bag or the whatever would cause a huge response, you know, really a big response. One time I was um, uh, sober probably three or four years. I was in grad school. No, I wasn't even in graduate school, so maybe I was not. I was only, I, I got that wrong. I was probably sober a year and a half um, or two years. And I was injecting a rat, and when you inject rats, I'm sorry if this offends anybody, I probably should be careful in Colorado, but um, <laughs> we were nice to them, except we were giving them a drug, and we were making sure that we weren't in a blood vessel, which is really hard to do. It's about the size of a hair, you know. So I had done many injections, never hit a blood vessel, so I'm holding the rat, I pull back, blood fills the syringe, my ears rang. I could taste Coke in the back of my throat. I almost dropped the rat, gave it to my friend, said, I got to go home. You know, I, I was sort of, I had this huge response just seeing it. And this is, I was probably sober three years at this point, or close to it. So drug paraphernalia, obviously. Also using buddies, you know, who you get high with. Elicits a big B process because it predicts the drug is coming. Anything that predicts the drug is coming. So it could be that. It could be the time of day or the time of week. You know, it's Friday or Thursday at my school or actually Wednesday. It could be your feelings. You know, every time I'm disappointed, every time I'm frustrated, every time I'm happy, I get high. So those feelings itself elicit the B process. It could be the, you know, you can't see this, but drinking at the beach or going to concerts. For a long time, I love music, live music, and I, I couldn't go to indoor concerts because I would have such a, a B process. Um, in fact, the first time, I, my first concert was Prince, actually. I was living in, uh, it's a kind of a timely thing, in, in Minnesota after treatment, and we weren't allowed in my halfway house to go anywhere where alcohol was served, so I'd just gotten out of the halfway house, and Prince was at this small bar, so I thought, oh, I can do this. So I go to the bar, and um, I'm sort of okay. The music was great. 
and you know, kind of holding on for dear life like this. And some guy, out of the blue, of course, comes up and says, hey, you want to get high? And I went, no, 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 I don't get high anymore. I used to get high, but I don't do it anymore. I don't want any. And the guy's like this, OK, it's OK. It's not good. But you know, it was too much for me. Uh, and then you can't see it, but this is sports events. Basically, money is another one, having a lot of cash. So what is this like for someone like me trying to get sober? It's everywhere. The cues are everywhere. And what do those cues do? They bring on the B process. If I can get this to show up. Maybe not. Um, so those things all elicit this B process. And the B process is there without the drug. So I'm trying to stay clean. And all I got is, you know, my mouth is watering. I'm sweaty. I'm, you know, kind of like. I, so it takes a while to get rid of that. And that, of course, is the craving that comes on. And I think the more time that passes, the more you know, that gets, you can unlearn that too. The brain does unlearn it, but it takes a while. And in fact, there are three causes of relapse, I think. Um, one is the cues associated with the drug. And those cues could be feeling states or money or whatever. Um, another one is the ta a taste of a drug. And you could taste one drug, and it greases the rails for another, because um, it predicts being high, and the brain can adapt to that by making you low. It's kind of like, um, yeah, it is like physics. And then the third one is stress. And we just know that's a big boogeyman, and we can't do anything about it. But um, so I study stress now, but. I would say it affects everything and explains nothing for that reason. But uh, anyway, so I'm going to give two examples, unless there is a question right now. But I think the examples might make it clear, and then we'll have some time for questions. I was going to time myself. The first one is um, opiates. So I want to talk about narcotics. So they've been used for a long time. The plants evolved these compounds for their survival, because if an animal ate them and fell asleep, Maybe it was uh, less likely to eat more. So it helped the plants. Um, opium is obviously comes from the poppy. And it was not that big of a problem until we isolated the active ingredient, which was morphine. And that was named after Morpheus, who is the god of dreams. And so it's known for its ability to produce a sleepy, relaxed state. Again, not the hugest problem until the hollow syringe came around, and then, of course, uh, big issues because we could uh, deliver the dose and the, when we wanted to, as much as we wanted to. So the first axiom you might remember is drugs only change the rate of what's already going on. So what is going on that allow opiates to work, these, these plant-based compounds? Things that are either um, natural, like morphine or heroin, or synthetic, like fentanyl or Dilaudid or whatever. So we have a big list. We have dozens of narcotic drugs, all opiate drugs. They work because they change the rate of what's already going on. And what's already going on is endogenous opioids, things like endorphins and enkephalins and dynorphins and endomorphins. And I would say that the list of natural opiates in your brain, the neurotransmitters that are opiates, is at least as rich and complicated as the list of things we've come up with in the lab. So your brain makes, even it makes its own morphine, literally morphine, same compound. So it's, it's just, there's a whole pharmacopoeia in our heads of all these opioids. Why are they there? This is kind of a 
a weird aside, but um, this is the, my, some of my graduate work in Colorado, in Boulder was on this, but uh, they're there to help us deal with stress and danger. So the things that release opioids, these, these chemicals that are all over the brain, include um, a, a list that wouldn't fit on this, and you won't be able to see it anyway. I don't know why it's like going. Exercise, some of you know that here. Cold exposure, you might know that. Condition fear, so if I know I'm going someplace and it's going to be scary, I might have released opioids even this morning. You're looking friendly, but you never know. <laughs> Sex, especially for women, interestingly. Social defeat, especially for men, interestingly. Uh, acupuncture, electric shock, food deprivation. It's a crazy list um, somehow. I don't know. OK, force swim, heat, immobilization, novelty, predators. I mean, a whole ton of things that are potentially dangerous and potentially threatening we cope with. You don't even know this, but you're releasing opioids. I want to give you, I think I have time for my favorite example, because which is unsolvable anagrams. You can't see that at the bottom. I wish I had done this experiment, but it was done with uh, undergraduates. You know, they're great rats. Um, <laughs> And so these, uh, and I know this firsthand there, they'll do anything for extra credit, you know, half a point, anything. Um, they won't actually study, but, th but they'll do something for extra credit. So uh, if you say, if you, you do this experiment, you bring them into the room, and be on their way in, they have to put their hand in a bucket of ice cold water. And you just measure how long does it take them to pull their hand out. You just tell them, we're just measuring how sensitive you are to pain. And it is painful. It's a, it's a common test. So we measure maybe they take it out in 10 seconds, let's say, on average. Oh, that's just too cold. It's hurting. And you give half of them, well, I won't tell you what you do. So you bring them in. Then you say, OK, you know, two points extra credit if you solve these anagrams. And you got the whole class to do it. So they're unsolvable. So there's stress. This is how you can stress an undergrad. And then you measure their pain sensitivity on the way out. And it's now 20 seconds. They can keep their hand in there for 20 seconds. They don't feel it. Now, how do I know it's opioids? I give them Narcan on the way in or saline, a placebo, on the way in. So the ones who get the saline, the placebo, they wait for 20 seconds. The ones that get the Narcan, how many seconds? 10, 8 to 10, actually. They might have had a little bit of, of circulating ones. So we know we block those, that release. Do you get it? So there's all kinds of things. And our, our brain's so great, it's making sure we can cope with all this stuff, these crazy teachers or whatever. So opioids, these natural compounds, help us adapt and survive when we're injured or stressed or in danger. But there, I told you there's a... The brain adapts. And how does it adapt? And I don't know why these are less well known. Um, we're getting there, I guess. But there is a whole, also pharmacopoeia in our brains of anti-opioids. These things do the exact opposite thing. And this will take me a bit to explain. Because if you don't feel pain, and you don't feel danger and stress, and you're safe, you're going to die. Pain is so useful, right? It teaches us what to avoid injury and danger, and then it helps us recuperate when we have it. So if you, if you escape the mountain line, get away, and then don't feel anything, you'll get infected and you know, have a slow death instead. So that's not good. You have to feel pain just at certain times. So the brain is kind of 
fine-tuning that. So this is, in, these compounds increase our sensitivity to pain and stress and danger when we're safe. My favorite story of this is um, from an undergrad. There's a lot of stories. And actually, maybe I should give you those two, because I really apologize for this. I would not have done it. I'm just going to put these all up, and then I'll tell all my stories so you won't forget it. So in the 80s, people began to suspect this. And one way they figured it out was they took um, brain extract, whatever that was, sort of ground up brain, from, um, from a, addicted rats, and they put it into naive rats. And the naive rats went into withdrawal. They had diarrhea. They couldn't sit still. They couldn't sleep. Their eyes were running. They had never had morphine. They just had the opposite effect. Um, there, a great story. Uh, so I'll give you this scientific one, and then I'll give you my fun one so everybody gets it. But um, I, I do love this experiment. This was done in Boulder by a colleague of mine. He had, I told you that conditioned fear elicited opioids, remember? So if you expect danger, you'll go ahead and release them ahead of time. And um, he trained rats to expect danger. It was a mild electric shock. And so they were going to get shocked, which they didn't like. But that happened a little bit, um, probably for about three days in a row. And the rats very quickly learned to release opioids as soon as they got to the place they were going to get shocked. And we knew that because you'd bring them in, and they wouldn't feel any pain. You didn't even have to shock, you didn't shock them. So they don't feel any pain. And then um, he also trained them, because he would turn on a special light when the shock was going to be over, that, OK, now you're safe. And so he noticed that they wouldn't feel, they wouldn't feel, they wouldn't feel any pain. He turns on the light, and all of a sudden, they feel a lot of pain really quickly, much more quickly than it would take at least 20 minutes for the opioids, the peptides, to kind of go away. But this would be like in a few seconds. They'd feel pain normally as soon as the light came on. And so how did he prove that endorphins and anti-endorphins were released? Well, if he gave them Narcan on the way into the room, they did feel pain. So you could block the opioid release. And then he did this. He brought them in. He gave them morphine, turned on the light, and they were totally normal. Didn't get high at all. So you see, they made their own chemicals that could totally block morphine analgesia, and a pretty good dose of it, too. My, um, so my personal story is I was telling this to students one time, and this kid said, hey, I think that explains what happened to me. I was in the final minutes of my uh, high school um, soccer, it was a championship game, and they were, it was a very tight match, and uh, the state championship, and this kid apparently broke his tibia. With a few minutes left in the game, three or four, played the rest of the game, didn't feel it. Five minutes, oh my gosh, you're kidding. No, you didn't give me an hour. Holy cow, all right, I shouldn't tell the story. All right, he gets in the, so he didn't feel it at all. They won. He gets in the minivan with his parents. Ton of pain. So that was his safety signal, mom and dad. Okay. Um, let me give you just, I'm going to skip that. I want to give another example. Wow, okay, bummer. I had my own clock here <laughs> going from when I started. Oh, now she's giving me eight minutes? Okay. <laughs> Um, I just, okay, let me just point out this, that the A process to opiates, 
is analgesia, so you don't feel pain, your respiration is reduced, you're euphoric, you're relaxed and sleepy, the god of dreams tranquil, your blood pressure goes down, you have constipation. The B process is the exact opposite. Pain, panting, dysphoria, you can't sleep. And it's always the case that withdrawal is the exact opposite. So the way, one of the ways opiate withdrawal happens is that the more exposure you have to opiates, the more you upregulate or enhance your anti-opiates. It's just terrible, because you can't get high. And you need opiates to feel normal. So the, the next example is close to my heart. I absolutely, I, I used every drug I could get, but I loved marijuana. And I remember, you probably remember where you were at 9-11, especially since we were just talking about it. I remember where I was in the world uh, when this paper came out, which was in uh, 1988. I, um, it, we characterized the binding sites for marijuana. Up to that point, we knew marijuana worked in the brain by changing the rate of something that was already going on, but we didn't really know what that something was. We had no idea what that something was. And so I was in grad school. I was sober, missing weed, but pretty interested in this study. And um, it was a huge surprise. This is a, um, a rat brain uh, sliced. And all the dark spots are cannabinoid receptors. And these cannabinoid receptors are where THC works. So we didn't know that until this paper came out. And um, it was a huge surprise, not because the receptors were there. We knew we were going to find them, but because they were everywhere. They're in virtually every connection in the brain. And we expected nothing like that. Dopamine is not in one, one millionth of as many places as these cannabinoid receptors are. So people said, what? We now know THC is working, but it's, it can work all over the brain. It's going to be pretty hard to understand. And it affects endocannabinoids, just like morphine uh, mimics endorphins. THC mimics anandamide and 2-AG, another uh, endocannabinoid. And these things, why did they evolve? So I have a story, because I thought I'd be losing you by this point, and I'd be down to five minutes. This is my dog, Bowden. He's now about 112 pounds. But he was a little puppy one day, and he was walking outside um, in the grass, and my daughter, by mistake, dropped a piece of bacon, which here is actually DNA, but uh, that's my bacon. Anyway, um, he got that bacon, and you could just see him. He was like this, you know, and oh my gosh, bacon. So what happened in his little dog brain? Um, what happened is anandamide, or 2-AG, these endocannabinoids, you can't really see this, kind of lit up his olfactory system, his taste receptors, probably where he was in the grass and what the kind of day was. I mean, this is like important news, this bacon, and I'm going to pay attention to it. And that's what these chemicals do. What they do is highlight, um, they can modulate all neural activity to tell us, wow, something really critical. Something like bacon just came through here, the synapse, and you better pay attention. So it's like a neurological highlighter to say this is important, this is important. And that helps us. Um, it plays a big role in neuroplasticity because what's important to attend to is what's important, what matters to us. And, and endocannabinoids tell us what matters. So here's an example in humans. You know, you whatever your bacon is, a great poem or a lover or a beautiful day, and little discrete spots would activate um, around your brain to say this is 
meaningful to you, Judy. Pay attention, Judy. Um, which is great, it helps us survive. Um, but with THC, what happens? So it goes, it floods the whole brain. And because the receptors are everywhere, everything's amazing, right? It's not, it's not just that day. It's, it's the floor texture, you know? It's rice It's whatever. I mean, it's, you know, my ideas, brilliant. I can't remember them later. Why can't I remember them? Because you need to sort of discriminate the important from the unimportant. So I, I say, essentially, you know, what use is a watering can if the fields are flooded? You know, and that's what's happening there. So lots of things, um, you know, are more rich and meaningful, and that's kind of part of the fun. It's not so bad. It does impair memory, but worth it probably. Um, so the acute effects, not such a big deal. It slows your response time because everything's paying, you know, you're paying attention to. But the B process, and I'll just end with this. I won't go too much. You can even see on the left and on the right. On the left is an animal treated with saline, and on the right is an animal treated with THC um, for six days. And you can see that those cannabinoid receptors have downregulated. They've gone away. This is the B process. Here's another picture. Control or placebo on the left. A single dose here in this line, and then increasing doses for this case, I think it was for seven days. So many, it happens in humans too, and um, we decrease the cannabinoid receptors the more exposure we have to THC. That is the B process. And the effects of that are um, pretty, by the way, the more you smoke, the lower your cannabinoid receptor numbers are. So for me, what that meant was nothing was at all interesting without being stoned. I mean, I was so bored. Like, come on, you know, family events, exams, please. You know, no, I had to be high just to get out of bed um, because otherwise it was bleak. If these are the chemicals that tell me what's meaningful and interesting, and I don't have any natural signaling, then nothing's meaningful or interesting. The good news is these come back. So um, I was about probably three or four months sober walking down the street in Minneapolis, and I almost fell to my knees looking at the um, leaves on the trees. I had no idea. Red, purple, orange, yellow, green. I mean, it was crazy. I couldn't believe people were just walking by. You know, they were coming back which was good. But for heavy smoking teens, and I'm, I'm not going to, you probably know this, and this could be a different talk. I'm just going to skip through. They, it changes their um, cortical structure. Their pleasure pathway becomes insensitive, insensitive. They're more likely to be addicted to other drugs. Um, they're more likely to be impulsive and less likely to graduate from high school, have bad moods. Um, and I have the data if you want to see that later. So let's just, I'm going to give you a quiz on the teacher. This is my last slide. Caffeine um, produces arousal, and I can put a sentence together. What happens, uh, what's the B process to that? Yeah, lethargy, right? I don't get up in the morning until I have caffeine. Barely can talk. Alcohol makes us relaxed, feel good, right? So the um, B process is not feeling good, anhedonia, anxiety, and insomnia. Nicotine helps us uh, be aroused and concentrate. So uh, this is you're anxious, 
you can't concentrate. It's always the opposite. Ecstasy, you don't even have to know what it does, <laughs> produces depression. Benzos, anxiety, and insomnia. It's guaranteed the B state, the B process adapts. So the main thing is that the brain adapts to every drug that alters its activity <laughs> by producing the opposite state, period. And there's no way around that. Um, that plasticity is responsible for tolerance, dependence, and craving, which are the hallmarks of addiction. And so we want to use this information probably in um, prevention and treatment, hopefully. Uh, and then if you have questions, you can write to me at Bucknell or at neveenoughdrugs at Gmail. And, or we can talk during lunch. Thank you. All right. Is there time for questions? OK, there are some time for questions. That would be great. Anybody? Come on. Oh, good. Yes, ma'am? Um, my understanding is that drugs, <coughs> uh, continued use of drugs affects the parasympathetic system. So the, the continuous use of drugs affects the parasympathetic system. Well, it's really clear with stimulants. Stimulants activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight, and the parasympathetic is to relax. So what happens with chronic stimulant users is they're perpetually sort of under-aroused. So they got to step on it. But I would say that every drug is arousing to some degree. I mean, if you take a downer, then you activate the sympathetic. So I mean, nothing, everything is connected in the brain. So by altering arousal states, I mean, I'm probably missing some fine question underneath there, and maybe there's something I should read, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. And for me, that was certainly the case. That, um, and I still think I'm sort of chronically under-aroused, which is why I, my husband's frustrated. You know, do we have to take another trip? You know, can, can, do you, you know, can, can you just be content at the house? No, um, not really. <laughs> But I don't know if that answered. Maybe we can talk later. Yes? Yeah, you, yes. Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean if drugs don't make you feel good? Like, or OK, so what does it mean if drugs don't make you feel good? You are lucky. Um, and it depends on the drug. Virtually everyone likes stimulants, cocaine. So that's a pretty universal pleasure. Um, so stay away from that. But about uh, 20 to 30% of the population don't like opiates at all. Some think they're OK, and some will sell the house. So I think that that is genetic. That's part of the genetic component. Same with THC, same with alcohol. If you're really sedated by alcohol the first time you take it, you're much less likely to become alcoholic. I was totally not sedated. I was completely euphoric, and that is a bad sign. So, um, and that tends to run in families, those signs. Yes, sir? Are there any uh, studies or anything related to the connection um, when the B states kicks in and self-harm or suicide? Yeah, well, um, the, definitely. So seven times, one study found um, a much higher rate of suicide in chronic marijuana smokers when they were young. And I can say that um, the B state, because the A state is hedonia or pleasure, the B state to all addictive drugs is anhedonia, which means that it's just like, and this is how I felt. Don't tell me I, I'm 23. 
you know, what if I live till I'm 40? I'm not going to make it that long without enjoying my life. I thought I would have to bowl. No, I shouldn't have said that because Liz said they go bowling. But, you know, I was like, <laughs> please. Um, uh, but I think it does adapt back. And one thing I didn't get to say, but because I got clean at 23, I think I had a big advantage because my brain was still really plastic. So it was an increased risk for developing an addiction, but maybe also um, primes for recovery. And so it's a really critical time to intervene if possible. But I, I do think, um, and maybe my neutral is kind of permanently tamped down. I mean, that's... The, the, the animal studies suggest there's some things that don't fully bounce back. Yes? Um, so you have the THC receptors light up everything in our brain. We didn't talk about alcohol in there, but given that... Sorry. No one can hear I can also I'll repeat so it, though. Given that um, you know, marijuana is now legal, are, do you look... Do you forecasting ahead to a next generation that's growing up with legalized marijuana... Yeah. I mean, as a parent, I have that that THC lighting up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very big concern. Do you see yeah. something like that happen? I I to would love to talk about this, and maybe I'll come back another year and do it because this is such a um, a critical thing. So during this, think about this these cannabinoid signaling and. Um, it's all over the brain, and it's there to say whatever synapses are sort of firing when something important happens, we can kind of capture that salience or that meaning. Now, the time where those synapses are probably most in use is during the period from about 12 to 25. When I'm figuring out, you know, who do I like to uh, marry or procreate with who, what kind of music do I like? What do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to live? You know, what do I care about? What are the issues that matter to me? And if, and that's what, that's why this is so highly active then. Well, if those receptors are going away, you know, there was a kind of a joke in the science, is it that people who like to sit on the couch and watch cartoons just happen to also like to smoke pot which is sort of the cigarette company strategy. Like, it's a coincidence that people are prone to cancer and also smoke cigarettes. We can't say one caused the other. Come on. So it's the same thing here. But I think we can show it in, in animal studies. And it looks like this would sort of derail an individual's um, chances for figuring out what matters. And I, I might, I mean, I don't want to sound hysterical, but it doesn't seem like a great time in the world to disengage a bunch of young people from knowing what matters to them. And, and it's hypocritical you know, for adults to say, well, I got mine, and you, know, you really shouldn't smoke, though. Um, they don't listen to that at all. So um, I am worried about it. But I think the consequences for a 60-year-old doing bong hits are much different than for a 16-year-old. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. So are there studies, um, this is a great segue, uh, looking at the effects of meditation on recovery and addiction. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna just leave it to my colleagues who are really experts in this, but I'll say that um, one of the suggestions made to me was that I meditate and contemplate. And this was really difficult. I don't know if it was all the stimulants or my initial genetics or what, but I was not gonna sit still. Instead, I worked my way through my uh, early recovery and maybe 
not so early even. Um, but recently I've started doing that and it is kind of the antidote for a lot of my insanity, I think. So I, I don't know the science of that, except that every study I see, it doesn't matter whether it's ADHD, addiction, depression, anxiety, um, what? It seems like there's a real benefit to this. And I'm, I'm personally convinced, but I don't have the data, but I think my colleagues may. Um, I have a, should I answer more questions, or is it time to go? Because I'm also here at lunch. Two more questions. OK, um, first you and then Billy, right? Just a quick question. Bobby. The statistics you quoted, one out of seven, yeah. Is, does that apply also to other parts of the world or yeah. just tend to be a North American? So, okay, big question. So what are the statistics? And they vary. Um, a recent study in the U.S. found that one out of eight adults is currently alcoholic. That's only alcohol. And I see one out of six across the world are substance use dependent, but that includes nicotine which is maybe not quite as bad. You know, it's, it's more detrimental in a way. So it's very, very high, and it's growing. It's growing. The highest rates are in the West, so in Europe and in the US. But it's increasing the fastest in places like um, Northern Africa and the Middle East. And they have huge problems with stimulants like CAT, their own stuff. So it, no place is immune. Um, what's really interesting to me as a scientist is that We've put billions of dollars and tons of research into understanding this, and it's just getting worse. So the chance of you dying in the gutter from your addiction today are as high as they ever were, and there's more people who are in the gutter to begin with. So um, we haven't made a dent with what we've been doing, unfortunately, and it is an epidemic. Now, Bobby, is that right? Yeah. So we talk a lot about isolation and addiction. Yeah. Well, so in the book, it's funny, the last few chapters, I thought I was going to say, you know, neuroscience is, we're, we're going to get it any minute now, you know, the, the next uh, great drug for treating everything. I, I think that um, stepping back from my molecular studies with mice and rats in the lab, um, I think that I would say addiction is a disease of alienation. It's certainly... Um, develops in alienation and it fosters alienation so it's kind of a vicious cycle and that recovery is a process of connection to myself and to other people and to something bigger maybe so I, I do think that the shortest course and this is probably damning any chance of me getting an NIH grant in the next year but the shortest course is about um, is about social influences. And interestingly, the neuroscience is probably supporting that. So the best way to affect the brain is to affect the environment that then affects the brain. So the brain is no Oz behind the curtain, you know, calling the shots. It's really a lot to do with our context and our social relationships especially. So thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it.